Thanks for tuning in to Bar Crawl Radio Podcast. We are sponsored by Magic Mind. I'm Alan Winson. I do much of my most productive thinking in the morning. I recently added Magic Mind to my morning onesies. That's coffee and a bit of a toasted and buttered fresh everything wheat bagel that I get from a local bakery on Broadway. Then I read and write and think. About an hour in, my eyes would usually get droopy, but not since I added Magic Mind to my routine. My old eyes have brightened and the new ideas are flowing. I do not know how the thing works, but I want to thank this little two-ounce green juicy brew for helping make my mornings productive and a bit more joyful. If you want to get a discount on Magic Mind, Rebecca will tell you how after this BCR conversation. Okay, so on with today's program. The Honorable, the Chief Justice, and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Oh, yay, oh, In 1963, yay, when the Supreme Court overturned Gideon versus Wainwright, Justice Hugo Black wrote, quote, Even the intelligent and educated layman requires the guiding hand of legal counsel at every step in the proceedings against him. Without it, though he be not guilty, he faces the danger of conviction because he does not know how to establish his innocence. And nevertheless, despite this right to legal counsel for the poor, according to a 2023 NPR report, almost all criminal cases in the federal court system end with a plea bargain that incarcerates large numbers of innocent people who are coerced into guilty pleas due to prosecutors' control over sentencing guidelines. Today, we'll be talking with two public defenders of Prince George's County Circuit Court who do not accept the plea bargain conundrum, as they actively represent those who cannot afford a private lawyer. That was Alan Winson, and I'm Rebecca McCain, and we are Bar Crawl Radio, recording in Greenbelt, Maryland, a 24-minute car ride, to the Supreme Court. But at the moment, we're closer to the ground floor of justice, talking with two lawyers working to bring justice to those who cannot afford it. Assistant Public Defenders Brandon Rubin and Yash Ford of Prince George's County Circuit Court. And with that bit of an introduction, here we go! Josh Ford is a Prince George's County native. After graduating from a local community college, Joshua completed his undergraduate studies overseas. He's a proud graduate of Howard University's School of Law, where he served as the captain of the Goler T. Butcher International Moot Court Team. As an assistant public defender for Prince George's County Circuit Court, Josh handles handgun, assault, controlled substances, and felony theft cases. And with us is Brandon Parker Rubin, an assistant public defender responsible for felony jury trials in Prince George's County, Maryland. He teaches law at Fordham University and writes on issues within the criminal legal system. Before becoming a public defender, Brandon served as a federal law clerk at the appellate levels. Recently, Brandon was the campaign treasurer for a public defender colleague who ran for the Prince George's County Council. And Brandon is the son of our good friends, Paul and Paula Rubin, 
Alan and I have been his unofficial but real aunt and uncle since he entered this world. We are enormously proud of his accomplishments. And one more note. Yash Ford and Brandon Rubin have been close friends for over 20 years. They met while attending the University of Maryland. Brandon and his wife moved to Yash's hometown, Greenbelt, Maryland, a few years ago, and now both work as public defenders in the same office. And, and, and where, where, are, where are we're we? We're at the Granite Building. We're at the Granite mm-hmm. Building. 115 Centerway, Greenbelt, Maryland. Right, where, where Yash here has uh, offices. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Courtesy of Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> I think this might be called the Roosevelt Center, actually. Oh, okay. I think. The Granite Don't Building. Don't quote me Roosevelt. Yeah, this was created by Eleanor Roosevelt, this mm-hmm. whole little community here. That's yeah, right. Yeah. And you both, you both live in this area. You oh, yeah. Close by. Okay. Yep. okay. We're members of the same cooperative. Well, okay. Okay. Okay, you ready? All right. Gentlemen of Prince George County Circuit Court, why did you become lawyers? Ayash? I started to think about becoming a lawyer in undergrad. I studied at the University of the West Indies in Barbados. My undergraduate degree was political science. You know, and I started to read Nelson Mandela, and I noted that he was a lawyer. I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, and Malcolm wanted to be a lawyer. Oh, I didn't um, know that. Yes, that Malcolm X's story and his desire to be a lawyer was very interesting. He was in grade school. He was in a private grade school, I believe, in the Midwest. I want to say Kansas, Oklahoma, Arkansas. And he had the highest grades in the class. Um, it was a majority white class. Um, and his teacher said, Malcolm, what do you want to be when you grow up? And Malcolm, with the highest grades in the class, said, I want to be a lawyer. And his white school teacher said, well, Malcolm, you know, black people can't be lawyers. Get out. No, they he's, didn't. Oh, he's, he's, uh, no, he said, <laughs> he's, he said, he said, why don't you be a carpenter? Jesus was a carpenter. Oh my God. Blacks are good with their hands. And, and, and look at what Malcolm, he was, would have been one of the best lawyers this country's ever seen. Um, so reading that autobiography. Um, I'm curious, because I never, why haven't we ever heard this story? That's a great story. Oh, I thought it was such a powerful story that Malcolm had that inner feeling of argument and oration. Um, and I wonder uh, what his life trajectory um, would have been had he had a teacher who was able to see him or a country that was able to see him um, in his childhood. So did this give you an idea early on of the kind of law that you wanted to do? Because, I mean, you're obviously not into business law. So, uh, you know, yeah, sure. Abs- abs- absolutely. You know, my uncles, um, and I think as a black man in America, I, I was never um, but so many steps removed from the criminal legal system. I have family members who uh, were subjected to the carceral system in America throughout my childhood. So, you know, it it may have been in there somewhere even before it became conscious. The desire became conscious when I started to note in political science uh, courses that everyone that I admired had this this degree, had this qualification, um, and that was the the legal qualification. Um, Lenin, was a lawyer, uh, Nelson was a lawyer, Fidel was a lawyer, Malcolm wanted to be a lawyer. Fidel Castro was a lawyer? 
Yeah, absolutely. Of didn't course know, he was. Didn't know, I didn't know I did, that either. Know yeah, that. he was a lawyer. <laughs> um, oratory, so, argument, and justice. That's I, I got that that thread, um, and I have been said to be you know argumentative in my own right, and so it, it resonated with who I was, and and ideas about justice and equality for me. Well, thank you, Yash. Absolutely. Thank you, Brandon. Um, well, I got. Uh, two degrees in English and I was thinking about getting a PhD in English and comparative literature and looking at the intersection between literature and philosophy and you know how people use language to create meaning and really shape the world um, and I didn't get into a PhD program in English or comparative literature that I wanted to and I could have applied again I got close I think I would have gotten in somewhere um, but I was writing not so much about literature, but really more interested in like social theory and how literary scholars developed ideas, again, around language and how to read the world as text, as people read um, uh, novels and, and, and literary text. And when you read the world like you read literature, then everything becomes up for debate. Anything that someone puts out there in terms of an idea is a choice. Like, an, like a novelist makes aesthetic choices. So now, if a pastor is talking or a politician is talking, you can view them as you might view a novelist. They're just saying things, um, which are open to assumption and viewed as choices. And so I wound up writing or, or drawing on those lessons from people who study literature, but then who applied it to society. Um, and so several of my mentors thought, oh, well, you could potentially go into public interest law because that's working with language um, and uh, using language to impact societies in ways that you think are salutary. So that is why I chose to go into public uh, interest law Yeah, yeah. and public defense. I mean, later we're going to be talking about hopefully get into some ideas of the kinds of work cases that you're dealing with mm -hmm. now. And you're certainly not dealing with high-end literature. But you are dealing with language. Yeah, my job, I think, is just purely language. And there is uh, my view, and this is these are ideas that I'm developing, but I think there's a very good argument that um, a public defender is the artist figure or the poet. And the reason is because they're in the public sphere, which is the court institution that we work in, and it's their job to render a multiplicity of meaning. Whereas the prosecutor is really more like the pastor. The prosecutor comes in with one truth. In addition, the public defender is not motivated by a profit like um, an artist. You know, they're they are paid a wage by the state, but it's fixed. And so the multiplicity of meaning that they render on behalf of asking other people to understand their clients in a nuance, which to me means human capacity, uh, is their focus. Um, and so I actually think, for me, there's a direct connection between the work of the public defender and the work of the literary critic or the work of the artist or the poet, and that's my view. Right. Interesting. So the, the prosecutor is the pastor, Yeah. and you are the poet. That's what I think. Wow. And when we make presentations to 12 people who are the juries, those are the two figures. And we're asking them to see shades and nuance, and the prosecutor is asking them to see one truth. Interesting. 
Thanks. Wow. 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 I never thought of it that way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Neither have so, I. Come, come, an article on that's coming soon. So. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. You heard it here first on Bar Crawl Radio. Right. There you go. So can you share a pivotal early experience that led you to what you're doing today? I can share two stories that um, are salient to me. Um, you know, my, my middle name is Akhenaten, and I was given that middle name from my uncle. Uh, my uncle served, I think, nine to 11 years of federal time in Lorton, Virginia. There is a part of me um, that desires to breathe life into the dream of my incarcerated uncle. Um, I remember as a young, a young boy getting the collect calls from the federal penitentiary. Do, 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 do you have a collect call from me? Mom, you know, you don't know at that point in time. Um, I also think of a time as a 14-year-old kid coming home from a youth group event where I was, be- I couldn't drive at the time. I'm 14. I'm being driven home um, by a white youth pastor and we get pulled over because the youth pastor ran this stop sign. It's like 11 o'clock at night or something. And he's giving me a ride home. And so we get pulled over, we get stopped. I'm 14, he's like 23 at the time. And we get pulled out of the car. I'm made to assume the position as a 14-year-old kid. And he, I assume the position, I'm on, my, I'm on my knees. And he says, put your hands behind your head. And the way he squeezed my hand, and this has never happened before to me in my life. And I'm not, I mean, I'm riding home from a youth event. And he goes, put your hands behind your head and, and the, when he, the amount of force that he applied when my hands were behind my back, I knew something is wrong here. Like this isn't, this, this is unjust. You, you get that feeling of like, this is indiscriminate. He's not, he's not using um, any type of judgment. And this was a youth pastor, was, was, he was African American? No, white. he was white. He was white. He yeah. was white, the youth pastor. Was he being uh, treated the same way that you were being treated? Well, you know? One, the, I, no, one, no. And two, given the age difference, I'm a child at the time. I, would, I think he, was, he put his hands on the hood of his car. So he wasn't made to assume, he, he wasn't made to go on his knees, which I was. Um, to say the least, my mother was furious. But the, of course, that moment stayed with me as a 14-year-old. You tuck that away somewhere those moments don't necessarily become salient when they happen it's later on in life that memory and consciousness do the things that they do and these experiences uh, congeal and i imagine it was subsequently um, in college and university when you begin to notice disparities when my social groups were diverse and i i noticed how some kids were treated and other kids weren't what kids went to jail and what kids got slaps on the wrist but i think between my uncle um and also that ex- that experience at 14 with with the pg police it was, it was it was formative it's it stayed with me when that officer grabbed my hands and my wrist i rem- I, rem- I, rem- I was like oh this is this is serious. It's, it's that, you know, you, you get that connotation. You were probably very scared. Yeah, yeah. He, this person could hurt me is, is what it communicated. 
for uh, being pulled over at a stop sign. And being for a rolling, being a passenger. Being a passenger. A child passenger going through a stop sign. There was no reason for me to be asked to get out of the vehicle. There's no legal reason so for it. So being a child passenger while black, that's the way you're treated. Yeah, it was the way I was treated, certainly. I, and, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I fear that there are plenty of people who look like me who are treated far worse, is, is, is the saddest part, who have far more egregious stories th- than that. Uh, but Brandon, you're a white guy. It's true. <laughs> <clears throat> you haven't been pulled over by the police, have you? I mean, if he was, he was probably they usually are guilty. very polite to me and say, <laughs> "Okay, sir, I hope you have a good day." <laughs> now, just remember next time. Yeah, they, they give me a, they give me a nudge. <laughs> they give you a little nudge, not a not a grab and a shake. So, what what was was there any particular thing that happened in early on that kind of led you to say, "This I'm going to be"? I don't think you always wanted to be. Lori, that wasn't your initial impulse, was it? Um, no, I mean, initially I was attracted, like I said, to getting a PhD in, in English, but my parents were, as you know... Um, as we know. Cre- yeah. My par- parents were creative professionals. I was around the arts my whole life, and um, uh, I, I do, like, as, as I said earlier, I, I find a very strong connection to public defense in particular and and living an artistic life or or a creative life so that um is uh resonates with me in that way okay okay we we, we, we got that yeah. but i i was i was curious because it's like you were going in a direction you were going to become a professor in literature right you turned around and i i don't know why you turned to this other thing which seems to be different but you seem to think it's similar Yes, I think I think it's very similar. And the, for me at that time, I think, you know, an academic career can be a little bit more monastic. Like when you practice as a public defender, um, you're very much in an arena of action. And there is that side to my personality. Um, and, um, you know, it's certainly a, I think, mature expression of iconoclastic or rebellious energy. And, you know, I was given... Uh, Albert Camus to read when I was seven years old, so <laughs> my mind was really, uh, you know, I really never had a chance. Um, and uh, I grew up in, in, in New York City in uh, Mitchell-Lama housing, which is mixed income, and so a lot of the people that I grew up with, mixed income and mixed race, a lot of the younger people I grew up with um, in my buildings got involved very early with the criminal legal system. And then I went to public high school, but Stuyvesant, which was a test in high school, so it had a lot of privileges associated with it. And my friends and I at Stuyvesant, both in high school and then in college, were really doing the same stuff that my friends in my buildings were doing. But what I noticed was that um, in cultures of uh, educational privilege and higher socioeconomic status, which then are disproportionately white, um, youthful transgression is met with um, responses from actors like school counselors or parents or therapists. Whereas if you are in a community affected by poverty um, or in a black community or other racial minority community, but in America, in my opinion, particularly black and Hispanic, 
perceived transgression will be met by the police and the criminal legal system. So I saw all that occur. But was there a moment, was there something that you saw that kind of was pivotal that you can identify? Like Yash was said, that these two very pivotal things that, that identified you as, this is where I got the idea that I wanted to defend. I just, did, did you have that? Honestly, what I saw was so rampant, it wasn't even just one moment. It was just like years and years of courses of conduct. Um, and then just seeing as we were in late high school and then college, you know, I would go away to college and then come home to the buildings where I was at till I was 18. And the people in the buildings would still be outside. Yeah, sure. Right. And they would all, and, and I was, they knew that I was going away to college. I was in a literature program, but really where I was at school, it was really more like a, a degree in, in social theory and really understanding things like colonialism and then the transition to post-colonial society and looking at like very, very deep structural dynamics that produce inequality in society and a very, very intense focus on understanding how power works in society. Right, right. And at that same time, you know, I'm uh, associated with and being welcomed in to different communities, including and especially the black community through Yash, through our other friends um, and other people that we know and looking around in America and thinking to myself like, well then what is a just use of uh, the abilities and opportunities that I have? And I was also very interested in the, what I view as the positive strain of a Jewish black alliance in the United States, which certainly doesn't exist in all capacities. But, you know, my father, when he went out to South Dakota as a Jew, his roommate was African-American. Um, and, and in my life, I've been fortunate enough to, to have a, a, what I view as a, as a deep affinity and connection with the African-American community. And so working as a public defender for all of those reasons for me seemed like a natural choice. Right. Let, let's get to the, to the main issue. Was there always a public defender? No. That comes out of a Supreme Court decision, I forget the exact year, maybe 1964, but it's called from a case called Gideon versus Wainwright. And it was a Supreme Court decision that established the right to counsel. And 1963. One year off. Um, <laughs> and uh, had, a, had a great ripple effect because it required every state to create a public defender system. Before 1963, um, if, if you were innocent and charged of something you and you couldn't afford a lawyer you had to defend yourself if you were guilty and charged of something you had or you're to, guilty and charged because the question is what are you guilty of are you guilty of what the police said you're guilty oh. of 99.9 .9 percent of the time no so the line between guilt and innocence is very murky and oh, yeah, but answer my question counselor therein lies the art of the poet did you <laughs> did you did you get did you get defense if if you couldn't afford it sometimes maybe probably sometimes not, not. A shoddy rendition? Anything. So it's 1963, you're poor, you may get defense or you may not. And you're put up against a prosecutor who's a lawyer. Oh, yeah. That doesn't yes. seem very fair. No, I don't think and so. And that's what the yeah. Supreme Court thought. Right. Now we're getting to the crux of the issue. Right, 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 right. Is the public defender work the same? Do they do the same work throughout the country? I, although the work is the same, defending those individuals who would otherwise not be able to afford private counsel, that's the calling. Um, but I think the rendering of the service looks different based upon the defender system that you're in 
and 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 who you're representing america um for all its plurality um is not homogenous from new york to dc um and so defender services from my perspective uh, probably look different based upon geography um, and also look different i would imagine based upon leadership um and and yet and yet uh, the the work is to um, represent individuals in the criminal legal system who cannot afford their own attorney. And, yeah, and I'll just say really quickly, too, because I think this is an important point to forward. Um, we all use the phrase, you, some people say criminal justice system, some people say criminal legal system, some people say criminal punishment system. Depends on your, uh, I guess, sensibility. But... It's a misnomer because there's one, there's a federal criminal legal system in the United States, and then there's at least 2,100 different county-level criminal legal systems. So there really isn't a criminal legal system. It's totally decentralized. And I think to answer your question, I agree with Yash that ideally the job description is the same, but in terms of how these 2,100 different county-level defender systems are are funded and staffed absolutely it's different in different places no question about that right right so so in other words depending where you are you may get someone who is if i may use with someone who's more competent than you two or less competent <clears throat> than you two um yes definitely and 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 these systems may be funded at a very different level right from right. state okay. to state yeah. and, ju- and just to just to be clear um, you defend only those who are under threat of being jailed if found guilty. The short answer is yes. Technically, violations of probation are civil proceedings, but those are derivative of criminal proceedings. So that's kind of an arcane point. Basically, yes. The, the answer is basically yes. It's only criminal. Yeah. Yes. Right. We don't do like civil rights lawsuits. No. Right. There, there, is no, there is no right to a civil attorney yet in the country. Should it, well, okay, that's another question. Yeah, yes. My answer is yes, there should be. But Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, sometimes uh, people that are, um, can't afford a lawyer are sued, too. Absolutely. And, yep. and all these legal aid organizations that practice in the civil courts, they exist, but it's not mandated that everyone gets a civil attorney, for example, during eviction proceedings yeah. or being sued. So there are civil legal aid services but it's not constitutionally required like right. a uh, criminal defense attorney is. Right. Yeah. It seems totally unfair that you have this prosecutor who like knows everything and you're put up against him and you don't have the money to have a lawyer. It no, just per- that's a preposterous, it, it, that's an anti-democratic right, situation. Right, right, right. So there's, there, when it comes to a criminal case, there's no limitations to what you can do or limitations to the kinds of cases that you can take. Nope. Okay, no, the, there's a jurisdictional limitation. If it's a federal case or if it's a case outside of the county, you can't take it. But if it's inside the county, you get everything. I've, I've tried everything from trespasses to attempted murders. So. Okay, so we just, I just want to get some facts. Um, can you tell our listeners, what is the demographic of Prince George County? Uh, I, I'm going to say that Prince George's County is... I would say 50 to 55% African-American, maybe 20 to 30% uh, Latino, and then um, split relatively even for white, Asian. I'm happy and proud to say that Prince George's County is the most affluent 
um, black county in the country. It's one of the reasons, amongst many reasons, that I, I love calling this county home. And what crimes are your clients accused of? They're accused of, uh, on the misdemeanor level, things like theft, second-degree assault, uh, fourth-degree burglary, trespass, disorderly conduct, resisting arrest, um, assault on an officer, which usually occurs after the police beat them up. Then the police also charge people with assaulting them because they, you know, don't just completely submit to being tackled. Um, and those are the misdemeanor. Those are really the majority of the, the misdemeanor crimes they're charged with. And then on a felony level is a first-degree assault, armed robbery, and armed carjacking, carjacking, attempted murder, murder, rape, burglary in the first degree, kidnapping, those are, I think that's sort of the... What percentage of your clients are white? Point zero 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 one, or I say like statistically insignificant. Okay, so when you get a client, do you try to establish rapport? Do you have any difficulty establishing rapport? Is, how is, I how mean, here we have go? a white lawyer, an African-American lawyer, and so is it, there must be a difference in, in how you answer that question. Rapport is, rapport is very important. Um, and I, I absolutely um, expend a significant amount of energy um, garnering the trust of my clients and thinking about the lived experience of my clients and, and humanizing my clients. All things that I do not uh, perceive the criminal legal system as doing. Um, and, and I also perceive uh, my role is to tell the story of the human being that I represent. And rapport is very important in terms of soliciting the story from the client. Um, and, it, and it can be quite difficult. Most certainly. To answer your question, yes, I think rapport is massive. Um, I also would give homage to my uncle. Um, he and I have more recently been able to connect um, both his experience on one side of the law and my experience on the other. And it's, it's very important uh, for me to uh, traverse that dichotomy fluidly. It's, it's, in, in fact, I think it's required. Rin, what about you? It's a very uh, important question. And in an ideal world, uh, there would be, I think, ample time to always establish rapport. But it's a very high volume practice, public defense, because it's still underfunded and black communities and communities affected by poverty are still over-policed. So I have an unacceptably high amount of cases. And every single person that I represent generally is in a crisis situation. And so the question is, and oftentimes I have to have this direct conversation with my clients, I, what would you rather have? Would you rather have a lawyer who's going to spend 20 minutes with you 
really making you feel heard, really making you feel listened to, what you deserve, or would you rather get to it right now so I can get you from point A to point B and get you the outcome that you want? And it's not, it's a, that's a very compromised interaction. It's not what I would want, but if you have a caseload of 70 felonies and you have to talk to five people in a day, then speaking to someone for 10 minutes versus speaking to someone for 45 makes a lot of difference in terms of what you're able to do for people. Um, I, I think for me, the question in the room here is that you are defending um, African-American young mm-hmm. men, I assume. Or middle age or actually all ages, but... And you're white. Yeah, And the, the, the people <laughs> that put them there are right, of right. your color. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I don't talk to my clients like I, you know, talk to the guy working at the bank or whatever. <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, there are, I think, there are, I think, little ways of being and, you know, techniques of code switching, people can call it, that one can employ to build trust with a client. Um, yeah. Brandon has cultural capital here in PG County. You know, and I encourage him to dispense of it regularly. Yeah. You've spent a lot of your youth on the basketball court. I just played today before <laughs> before I got here. Okay, yeah. and you're in and, and, and you're in good shape. And Thank you. Uh, did, did did you gain some of that capital? You think on the basketball Definitely, court? Definitely. Yeah, I'll be playing at five foot five in New York City outdoors, playing basketball with. See, the basketball court outside, especially in New York City, is a very democratic space. Absolutely. Is that, all you have to do is roll up with a ball. Let's hoop. So for sure. Um, also, the buildings that I grew up in I, you know, exposed me to just a wide variety of individuals. Um, so, yes, yes. Um, I do my best to you know, allow those different parts of my life and experiences to emanate in order to build rapport. Um, but like I said, unfortunately, it's not always possible to build the type of rapport that you Absolutely. want. And it's really sad. That makes me all, that really oftentimes makes me very Absolutely. sad. I feel very bad about it, but I don't feel bad about the outcomes that I get. The public defender is required by law to be effective. You're required to be effective, right? And you're given the resources supposedly to be effective. But many times uh, the public defender as an idea is not depicted as effective. And I'm talking about in film. So for instance, in the 2021 film Naked Singularity, I don't know if you're familiar with that film, the only way a public defender can establish justice is through illegal means, the way I understand that film. Uh, of course, it is a film. Do you ever come across this attitude that you are not quite as good as like real lawyers? Oh my God. That's <laughs> all, I hear that all the time. Do you? Mm-hmm. I'm going to get a real lawyer, I said. Mm-hmm. You want to? You want? Yeah. And no, no. Look, I do. And when I was young, when I first started, it bothered me a lot because in my mind, I'm like, listen, man, like. But what I really, what I say now to clients is like, I understand why you say that. I understand how the image is depicted. But I want to tell you something. All the lawyers in the Prince George's County Public Defender Office could be doing really anything they want, but they're here because they care. There are many private attorneys who care too, but there are many private attorneys who don't. There are many private attorneys who do it because they view it as lucrative. We're here because we care about these issues. Absolutely. We care about the clients and we care about you. So, you ready to work or not? And then they say, okay, okay. And then we go from there. Wow. Yeah. 
But yeah. yes, the answer to your question is that is absolutely something that is in the zeitgeist and the zeitgeist and the cultural consciousness, absolutely. and is and is then internalized. And in fact, in the jail, if you have a quote unquote private lawyer, that can be a status symbol. But then sometimes in the jail, things get circulating. People say to me, oh, no, we heard about you or, or we heard about your colleague. And actually, we heard that you want a public defender. And in my mind, I'm like, hell yeah, you want a public defender. But that's a whole other discussion. How do we change that? How do you change that attitude? I mean, you're, mm -hmm. you're going to be writing more Yeah, more. no. Well, first of all, like TV shows like Better Call Saul, <laughs> The Mustard Stand, get that out of here, man. Yeah, like that's, yeah, yeah. That's, that's all, that stuff is a joke. But so, yeah, you would need people to engage in more responsible cultural representations. Um, and then, frankly, you need more public defender offices across the country to be funded at an adequate level to provide excellent representation to the clients. And, and then I think that's how that's how that would start to change. I was in private practice prior to joining the public defender's office. I can say far and away, I prefer practicing as a public defender. I did not go through law school and do all of that work because of pecuniary interest. Um, I want to live a nice life. I want to have certain things. I want to be able to provide for my wife and my son. Uh, but other than that, the work, the justice, the things that bring me to the law are, are far and away not compelled by money, by marketing, by client solicitation. Like um, Brandon shared, I experience public defenders as individuals who care and who are invested. I, I, I just wanted to take this uh, from a little different angle, and that, and that is, um, do your clients feel, you know, assuming they think they, they've gotten a good lawyer here to, 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 to defend them, do they feel the system is going to be fair? Do they see the system as something that's going to give them a fair verdict based on, you know, how the whole thing works? No. Is would be They my... don't trust the system. No. Why would they? The clients that we represent have life stressors um, and have interacted and engaged um, with society and and the community in a way which is um, antagonistic and stressful. They do not live in communities that are free of hypervigilance from the police. I have interactions where police immediately are threatening to cause bodily harm to my clients. My clients are very concerned about justice. Um, and I myself am very concerned about how the community at large conceptualizes justice. And maybe my clients aren't articulating it consciously, but I suspect that they also know that justice also happens outside of courthouses. Justice is about um, how you are interacted with in the public at large way before you arrive at a courtroom. Some individuals in society are more quote-unquote guilty than others before they ever even get stopped or frisked or searched. And I think my clients know that. And if they don't know it 
consciously and cognitively and at the forefront it is it is transmuted to them by various means of which they are quite knowledgeable and the 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 systems here we have the policing system we have that part the carceral system then there's the court system and they see this all kind of like all as one thing oh absolutely absolutely and along with the social system that you've been kind of referring to the the overall and 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 the social contract yeah yeah right it's the social contract which we all presumptively assume to abide by and then we hold individuals who've never been shown the paperwork or got to read its terms and clauses and say hey you violated and i violated what oh all of us we've got a social you do well, when did you when did you when did you talk about that? When oh, three hundred years ago, <laughs> that's when we talked about that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I might have missed that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't get a vote on that one. So, so despite these maybe misconceptions of your clients and misconceptions of the general public about public defenders, how successful are you at at getting your clients either a lesser sentence or freed? Yeah, I'm very successful. I'm proud of that. So Talk tell about us it. about it. <laughs> uh, can, yeah. May I? Sure. I'll just say, and I'm very proud of my dear friend. I, I had the pleasure um, of watching Brandon try his first attempted murder case. Um, and his, his client was acquitted. And I think that was in the last two or three weeks. And, and I don't even... If, if that is his biggest accomplishment, it's his biggest accomplishment because of the seriousness of the charges. Not that he hasn't had um, any number of these type of victories. So I, I did, I did want to say that. I'll let him work out the details. But my understanding is, Brandon is, I'm not going to make him say it, um, quite productive in ensuring um, that his clients um, and those individuals who come before the court in Prince George's County, whom he represents, um, receive justice, um, and I and I don't think it would be a misstatement to say um, that those individuals who are detained in the Department of Corrections would do uh, quite le- well to land on his docket or caseload. And I'll I'll let him give the details of his representation. No, thank you for saying that. You're yeah, welcome. I feel I feel proud of the work that me and then also my colleagues because. At, at this office, because in the office we are very successful in vindicating people's rights and protecting them from the criminal legal system and its punitive excess. Um, yes, so we put forward a great deal of effort and I think get positive results. Right. So yeah. you and your office have a reputation now? Uh, I mean, the lawyers in my office all have good, very good reputations. This yeah. this case, can you talk oh, about it nice. at all? Um, yeah, sure. It was an attempted uh, murder case. A lot of the lawyers in my office hand, handle murders and and win acquittals on murders or significant mitigated jury verdicts on murders. Um, yeah, th- this was just a case where the the prosecution wasn't really able to present evidence that was persuasive enough for the judge to let the case go to the jury. The judge can consider what's called a motion for a judgment of acquittal means no reasonable jury could find someone guilty based on this. And so the judge in this case made that finding that based on the evidence that the state had presented, that no reasonable jury could 
uh, conclude that my client uh, attempted to murder the other the, the complaining witness. The but you must have made arguments then. I did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we argued about many different um, evidentiary uh, analyses. You know, what are the who are the witnesses you need to authenticate surveillance video? You know, how uh, is the prosecution able to introduce surveillance video uh, into a trial? Um, you know, what is a lead detective who oversaw the case but who wasn't individually involved in every step of the case able to testify to? Do you need the individual police officers who had those interactions one by one to give evidence about what they did? Or can the lead detective offer broader conclusions? Um, because... There are cases and statutes that control all these issues. Um, and they, those are, in my view, constraining principles. Um, and when an authority figure like a judge uh, honors constraining principles like laws that are in the form of case law or statutes, well, now you have democratic action. And that's why I think the public defense project and criminal defense is a very idealistic project and a very democratic project because it's the actualization of constraining principles. Even if a judge thinks that someone did it and would probably like to see a conviction, if they rule contrary to that desire, now you have democracy. Um, and I think that's what, that's what occurred there. So that's why I was happy to be involved in it. Congratulations on that. Thanks. So there is a sense that state prosecutor, that a state prosecutor has an advantage over the public defender. Is that true? No, I do not think that prosecutors have some mythical legal powers that us criminal defense attorneys don't have. If anything, I think our culture and thinking about crime and quote-unquote criminal behavior to what extent is, is society fear-mongering yeah. election issues all the time tough on crime tough on crime and yet crime is rising so I, I don't think that they have a literal advantage in terms of litigation skills in the courtroom but everyone steps into the courtroom with preconceived ideas of justice and I think we live in a society where we have to think deeply about, about, about justice. And I, I think it'd be interesting to see the way that justice played out when you get an impartial judge who's on the bench, you get well-informed uh, juries, um, and you get prosecutors who aren't just trying to tell one story, and you get defense bar uh, who are giving nuance, zealous advocacy. So I don't think there's a magic button that prosecutors have, but I do think that we live um, in, in a society and we, and we have a culture which tends to have a type of neurotic hypervigilance around uh, quote-unquote, you know, criminal behavior, for a lack of a better word. That's how I'll phrase it here. Okay, but what about this? 
the the prosecutor has resources in the sense that he has investigators that can yeah, absolutely. investigate a crime. Does the, do the public defenders have um, people that can help them investigate a crime or or the lack thereof? Uh, some offices do, but I mean, many offices don't. You know, my view is that on on the question of prosecutorial advantage is that although I think these things are changing, but since say 1964, since Gideon, that they do have advantages in a few different ways. One, as Yash spoke about funding, so that's a material advantage. Um, I think politically um, alignment with law and order uh, candidates and also agencies like a prosecution office is much more popular than alignment with, say, a public defender's office, which has only been around since 1964. Um, so one, um, I think that prosecutors' offices were and still are um, uh, uh, receive a disproportionate amount of money. And many public defenders' offices and jurisdictions have been fighting for equal pay between prosecutors and public defenders. There isn't? You're not no. paid the same? Uh, Prince George's County's made significant improvements in terms of what we're paid, but no, probably in almost every county, prosecutors are paid more. So um, that's that's the first advantage. The second advantage was, until recently, for for Democrats um, and you know other people who align with other, I guess you could say, progressive political parties, it used to be political suicide to have been a criminal defense attorney. So in my opinion, there were incentive structures for a lot of the best and the brightest young lawyers to become prosecutors. That was how you found your way to a career in politics, and that was how you found your way to become a judge. Now, recently, that has shifted. Joe Biden has made it a point to appoint public defenders and civil rights attorneys. Justice Jackson was a former public defender. So that has been a shift. And I can tell you, because I taught a school in a law school, it is the zeitgeist has shifted in elite educational institutions so materially now that the young students who wanted to be prosecutors are almost now apologetic about it. And that was not the case 20, 30 years ago. Um, so that is shifting, although that's still a longstanding advantage that prosecutors have. Um, so money, um, cultural influence, um, the incentive for people to affiliate themselves with an authority figure as opposed to an iconoclastic figure who is associated with criminality, those are all real material advantages. But where the defenders have an advantage is in the burden of proof. And that is a constraining principle that when public defense is appropriately funded is very powerful. And when you have zealous defenders who are able to do their job to the best of their ability, then that is an advantage. Um, I, I, I wanted to talk uh, about another possible advantage a prosecutor has. That's the, the trial penalty, uh, in which uh, there's a tendency in the American justice system that an innocent person who's accused of a serious crime is encouraged by the prosecution to plead guilty for a lesser sentence. And it turns out that the prosecutor is the one that sets the sentence level. Um, so you set the sentence level high, and then you say, well, you can have a lesser sentence, but I'm innocent. Right. I mean, that gives them certain power, doesn't it? Yeah. And it also makes me think, um, Alan, of of upcharging. Upcharging. We're, you know, we're, we're going to throw four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve 10, 11, 12 charges. 
and encourage and incentivize by upcharging for something to be taken. My understanding is, you know, 96, 97, 98% of criminal charges in this country resolve by way of plea negotiations. And charge upcharging is a part, a part of that. When a client looks at the charges and you sit down and you say, okay, well, why they charge me with this? Why they charge me with this, 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 and this? You hear all that, well, is, is, was that actual or was that strategic? as a negotiating tactic, especially for individuals who haven't experienced the justice system. Um, and so that, that is a procedural and or technical um, advantage. It seems like a pretty big advantage. I mean, if, you can, if you're setting the sentence... And then giving and then giving them, you know, say, well, we'll give you a less lesser, you know, if you, you plead guilty, but I'm innocent. Well, you, you know, you're going to be found guilty. Yeah, it is, especially when you combine it with mandatory minimums and then also guideline sentencing systems, because basically ch prosecutors can charge crimes that have mandatory minimum sentences, meaning a judge won't have discretion. And even though guideline systems, both federally and in state systems, are now advisory because there were Supreme Court opinions that said they had to be advisory, a lot of judges still follow them. So they're kind of like de facto mandatory. Mm -hmm. So a prosecutor can say like, I'm going to charge you with this. If you're found guilty of this, like Yasha saying, you know, this is going to be what you're going to be sentenced to this mandatory minimum. Even if there's not a mandatory minimum, here's a guideline that you're going to, you know, come out at. And the judge is overwhelmingly likely to sentence you at that guideline. So in some ways it almost functions like a mandatory minimum. So here, there's your risk. Instead, we're going to offer you a plea to this. Um... So you want to take it, and that, of course, is a very powerful tool to manufacture pleas, and that's why, like Yash said, you know, 97, 98% of uh, dispositions are in, are in a plea because the incentive structures line it up. That's why a lawyer named David Patton, who used to run the uh, Federal Defenders in New York, he wrote an article called Federal Public Defense in the Age of Inquisition because in his view, it's turned into an inquisitorial system. It's no longer even an adversarial system because once you get charged... The likelihood is it's just a plea. Brandon, you shared with us the ideas of law professor and public defender Abby Smith from her book, Guilty People. Here is Professor Smith asking a key question. Once a person finds out that you're a criminal defense lawyer, inevitably they ask, how can you represent those people? They don't mean, how can you represent a young person who shoplifts a pack of gum from CVS? They don't mean your cousin who had one glass too many at some event and gets pulled over for drunk driving. They mean guilty people who do bad things. But for me, the truth is, I like guilty people. I prefer people who are flawed and do bad things to people who are irreproachable and do the right thing. Guilty people are more interesting. Question: How can you represent a person who you know has done something really bad? Well, I don't view. I guess I would. My response to that is like I don't view. I wouldn't. Don't view conduct in terms of the descriptor of really bad. You know, I view people's actions contextually. Uh, I have really never met someone, even people who the police say did things that police and prosecutors say are heinous or really bad that I viewed as some type of monster. Every single person that I've met 
has made sense to me as a human being that's responding to various elements of their environment. And um, so my answer to that is I think that it the police and the prosecutors almost never, in terms of what they actually charge people with and the narratives that they render, accurately depict the conduct that someone was engaged in they certainly never provide any context or reasons for it. So it's always a pleasure for me to represent people in those circumstances because it's humanizing work. Um, it is the work of rendering a multiplicity of meaning. It is the work of insisting that there is nuance, even where certain authority figures want to argue that there's not and that's never true it's just never true that's that's not how life works in my opinion that 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 is that is so right oh, we 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 well i mean you're just saying what what's what's true we live in a very complex world life is complex and to simplify it to you're guilty and you're innocent it's i guess you eventually have to do that but you have to accept the fact that this is really detailed and complex and a, a person's life is is more than just that act that that happened uh, absolutely I, I think the right to counsel um granted by the constitution is sacrosanct yes so you're, you're living with a case for it could be five six months mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i would imagine that you establish an emotional connection with a client that you get to know over time is that right yeah, yeah. absolutely yep so um, what I'm getting to is that your job must take an emo emotional toll. How do you handle the stress? It's hmm. a good question. I mean, you can uh, learn how to, my experience is you have to learn how to compartmentalize the work and not, you know, experience, you know, totalization of in terms of internalization. But like to go back to the work of an artist, like that attempted murder trial, like, you know, at least for me, like when you're in that experience, when I'm in that experience, like I'm the equivalent of method acting. Like that case and that life and that circumstance, there is a totalization of an internalization. Um, and, and that is, it's hard. And it takes time afterwards to process it and to decompress from that. Now, not every case is like that. Um, yeah. You won that case. Yes. What if you lost it? That would have been tough. Um, I think you have to learn to depersonalize losses. You have to you have to do the work so that you can stand on the work if you lose, and say that I know that I put the effort in. I know that I tried my best. Um, I think the most dangerous thing is taking a very serious representation, and for whatever reason, at a time in your life. You're not able to try your best. And there's a lot of good reasons that you, you're not in a place to really do a very serious trial like that. You could be sick. You could be dealing with some family issues. So it's not like, oh, you're a failure. But if you're going to take on a representation of that magnitude, I think you really need to be ready to try your best. Because then if you lose, at least my perspective is, I could have walked away from it being like, you know what? I tried my best. Yeah. Have you ever lost a case? Um, yeah, yes. And I would say I've never... Uh, done worse than what I've been offered as a plea. And I think that as a trial attorney, there's a responsibility to, I don't think you want to be losing 
too many cases in terms of having worse outcomes than the plea offer. I think you really kind of want to do your best to say, look, if I'm going to try this, then I feel pretty confident that I'm going to be able to do better than this offer. Because there's an argument that if you're consistently coming out on the wrong side of that equation, you may be being a little bit reckless. Yeah. Um, so how much longer will you be uh, doing this work of the public defender? And I mean, you could be making a, a lot more money with the skills that you have as a private attorney, couldn't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, sure, you could be working in a corporate law firm and making five, <laughs> six times the amount of money. So know? how much longer will you be yeah. working as a public defender, do you think? Uh, I don't know exactly. I couldn't, I, I don't see myself not working in some capacity in support of this work or as a public servant or, you know, doing, doing other work that's, that's related to it. So yeah, I don't have a, a, a timeline on that right now. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't predict what will happen next, but I, if I had to say a number, I think about seven to 10 years. Uh, I'm approaching 40. I, I think I'll do this until I'm approaching 50 at a min minimum. Okay. All right. We want to uh, thank Yash Ford and Brandon Rubin Absolutely. for sharing their experience of advocating for the in indigent people of Prince George's County accused of serious charges. Keep, keep up the good work, gentlemen. Thanks so We're much. We're very Thank proud you. of you. We absolutely will. Thank and you thanks for having us. for all the thoughtful questions. It was Thank a you. pleasure. Yes, it was. I look forward to hearing Bar Crawl Radio that. Podcast is sponsored by Magic Mind. All of you who listen to BCR Podcast may not know that I'm not a spring chicken anymore and that Alan and I have added Magic Mind to our daily health regimen. Let me tell you why it has become important to me personally. On occasion, I forget words, names of friends, my students. Frankly, I've always been bad with names. And here's the thing, though. Forgetfulness causes me to be concerned about my mental acuity, which causes me to feel anxious. And frankly, anxiety can cause people to forget words and names. It's a cycle of events. Worry, anxiety, forgetfulness. Worry, anxiety, forgetfulness. So I want to tell you something. At the end of our last podcast, I said that Magic Mind was magic. And I said that it had ingredients that are a mystery to me, that I couldn't even pronounce them. Okay, so I decided to educate myself about these ingredients. I started with ashwagandha, and this is what it is. It is a non-toxic herb that has been used for centuries. It has been shown to moderate stress and anxiety. So you see where I'm getting to? When I swallow my daily Magic Mind dose, I feel sharp. I have no stress about my mental acuity, and I don't forget words. The fact is, Magic Mind is not magic. It's science, and I highly recommend it. It really works for me. So, if Magic Mind sounds right for you, you can get a nice discount on your first order by going to magicmind.com forward slash barcrawl. And before you check out, enter barcrawl20. That is B 
B-A-R-C-R-A-W-L-2-0, all caps, in the discount code box. And let us know if Magic Mind works for you and what you think about our programming. Email Alan or me, Rebecca, at barcrawlradio at gmail.com. And again, thanks to Wade Ripka and his Eastern Blockheads band for our BCR Bop Bop theme music. Bye.